0: Right. Ladies and gentlemen, whoa, I almost knocked over my microphone. I'm so excited, I almost <laughs> knocked over my microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with the one and only Benjamin C. George on the George and George episode hour of the no absolutes, the terror before the sacred, and all things interesting. Welcome to the show. Benjamin C. George, how are you today, my friend? Ah,
1: another day in paradise, brother. How are you doing?
0: I'm living the dream. Thank you for asking. You know, before we got started, we were talking about the pitfalls of entrepreneurship and some of the ways in which one can find themselves in sort of a K-hole for those who are familiar with ketamine. Um, You know, it's, it's tricky. You can really pour yourself into something and block yourself off from everything else. And in some ways, I think that's what it takes to be at the top of your game and you can see the sacrifice. I think there's an, an old quote that says you can only serve one master. So maybe we could just, before we start talking about some of the new books and new things coming out, what do you think are some of the benefits and the pitfalls of your career as an entrepreneur? Can you tell us maybe a story or two? Sure. Um,
1: You know, I think while the pitfalls probably are more numerous uh, simply because that's just the nature of the game. It's it's try and fail, it's sacrifice and get nothing. It's um, almost get there and then fall down the mountain and then into the next valley, which you didn't even know existed. Uh, but then when you do get some achievement, when you do start to, you know, crest some hills and then eventually some mountain, uh, it's it, it makes it all worth it. Uh, mostly because... Not necessarily that you succeeded in doing something, but you learned so much about yourself, about people, about the world, about you know what the ins and outs of so many different things that we take for granted, nuances that we didn't even know existed. Uh, and in that perspective, I think there's great value, and I think that's where a lot of the the benefits outweigh the the detriments when it comes to the entrepreneurial journey.
0: Yeah, that is really well said, and you know, it's uh, I'm, I'm a big language guy, and when I think about language and the things I love, I think if you if you're building something, be it a company or a project or even a process, like if you're beginning this journey of building something, it seems to me you're building a new part of yourself. You're building a new idea about yourself and the environment, and it's kind of like a trip. It's, you know, which is takes us back to psychedelics in a way like it is a journey. It is a trip. You are going to stumble along the way. Sometimes you're going to have new areas, new lookout points. And you're you're going to find out probably more about yourself, like you said, than maybe the thing you're studying or maybe that thing you're trying to build is already part of you. And I'm always amazed at language and and you know, how beautiful it is, even though sometimes language fails. Now, your book, No Absolutes, A Framework for Life, it's part of a trilogy, which is a great word for language in a a one, two, three (laughs) series. What are some of the – you have some other titles for some other books. Can you tell us what those are and maybe start with the second one and, and explain it a little bit? well uh
1: it's it's a pending trilogy
2: okay fair uh,
1: enough. <laughs> uh they're unwritten but they're they're conceptualized uh the second one is no absolutes, uh a language for life and you know the idea being a lot of what we talked about in the course of this uh, podcast seven podcasts now uh is words are important how we use those words you you know uh you just said and it's interesting how language often fails that. Yeah. Um, and the exploration of that, I think, is a very valuable tool at a personal level, but also yeah. as a, at a communal level and a societal level, um, because, it you know, it's a different when, when we start to look at all these things as not not massive lines in the sand and these tribalistic us stem type ideas, mm-hmm. but more of a conversation and sharing of information, The you know, the the comparison of ideas. And the ultimate winner of better ideas, we, you know, it allows us to communicate at an entirely different level for one. Um, and it starts to remove some of these, you know, very long term isms of society, your racisms, your yeah. sexisms and all, et cetera. Uh, because now, you know, the, the, hard and line, the hard and fast lines are no longer hard and fast. There, well, there might be a line there, or there might not. Have you heard what this guy's talking about? As opposed to, you know, we can't listen to so and so because they're they're blue or they're red or they're conservative or they're liberal or they're, you know, a Raiders fan or a Broncos fan. (laughs) You know, all of these little dichotomies that you know we we, you know, can't see the larger picture because we can't see past you know the. The huge tribal giant in front of our eyes, this idol that you know everybody kind of suspends their rational and reasonable mind for. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I... I was going to say, so that's that's kind of you know the that would it's kind of the underlying idea behind the second book to build upon the framework of the first book to provide. A way for the individual to bas- start kind of programming their own their own life, in uh, you know, because the way that we speak and the way that we think will influence the way that we act and the you know the way that we traverse through this grand adventure of life. And so that was book number two.
0: <laughs> so let me ask you this: when I, when I, I I believe that thoughts are things and. The word, the, the, I forgot the exact breakdown, but it's something along the lines of the thoughts you think become the word, or the words you use become the thoughts you think, the thoughts you think become the ideas you have, and the ideas you have become the patterns of your life. And so Mm -hmm. the language that you speak, be it an inner dialogue or be it the words you use to explain yourself, your situation, or others. It's such an important issue because most people do not pay attention to the words they use. They, instead of listening to what someone says, they're thinking about a rebuttal. They're not totally consuming the information coming at them. And they want to respond so quickly, maybe out of respect or maybe out of necessity or maybe out of pain but they want to get it out so fast. They don't take time to conceptualize the ideas they want, and so the language just kind of spills out of them. And when it does that, it's like building a crappy sandcastle. It's just going to fall over. But if you don't have the good foundation, you can't build the tower that's going to last. And that foundation comes from the words you use, which kind of brings us back to framework. What? How do you? How do you use language to stay away from these isms? <clears throat>
1: Well, I mean, you know, instead of where do a lot of isms come from? You know, these, a lot of these things are because there was absolutism before the ism, mm. the individualism, And that absolutism was, you know, so-and-so is superior to so-and-so, right? That's usually where it stems from, uh, for one reason or another. And there's been so many throughout history, uh, and as soon as you have that, you have these individual isms born. And so the, those absolutisms of, you know, you know, one person's better than the other, you know, which in my experience and my travels, I, I would say there's n- I've never seen a single piece of evidence to support any any notion of that. Um, but, you know, it, those are things that. Bred these ideas into society, and to the point now where you know they've lost a lot of their potency because they are used just so willy nilly. You know yeah. they're thrown at everybody these days. Um, but at the same time, when people are constantly focused on those types of words and framing their perceptions and the things that they see in life in that context, you know it, it's no surprise that you end up with just an increasing chasm of divide that we're seeing on a, you know, pretty much a daily basis.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating to me how some of the things that are supposed to bring us together tend to be the things that divide us most. And when you look at something as powerful as like religion, let's say, let's just, let's just throw this monster out there. (laughs) So, you know, here's this beautiful idea that we are, are all part of the same organism or we all can find something greater than ourselves to believe in, to point us in the right direction. And all of a sudden it is, I heard it. I heard it said like this one time, religion is like a finger pointing to the moon, but we get caught up in the finger. Like that's a Brown finger. No, no, no. It's a white finger. Like, it's pointing at the moon. It doesn't matter. It's got a fingernail on it. It's got too many wrinkles. And it seems, if you look at that metaphor that way, we get caught up in the smallest details. I think mm-hmm. I think it was Freud who said it was the uh, the ego, the the monster ego of the mundane, or something along those lines. But we get caught up in these mm-hmm. small little details, and then we fight over those. And I think that that's one place where we could work on our ideas about language to help forge a better relationship with each other. And it, what, what is it about these small details that act like gaps or containers to push us into a small box? What do you think that is?
1: Well, I I think it's multifactored. Um, but one is certainly, you know, how all of these things have been used throughout history. Uh, and if you look at just about any religion that I'm aware of, uh, they've all been kind of usurped by people who wanted to abuse other people at some level. Uh, And, you know, it's really hard to do that, especially like from a, from the Abrahamic religions perspective. Um, You know, these things are very closely related when you start, especially the further you go back. Uh, And so how do you differentiate yourself from these people who were just over a mountain back in the, back in those times? Well, now there has to be something different in our, you know, our understanding, our, our, you know, our translations are, you know, what our priests interpret, you know, there has to be some difference there. And then eventually those little differences because they allow people to maintain, gain, Uh, control and power and resources and wealth and all of these things that humans seem really obliged to you know pursue Mm -hmm. eventually magnified by time you see where yeah back it was really close but then now you see I was just grown and grown and grown to these divides where now you have even within the different Abrahamic religions, you have a vast variety of sects that are you know very almost 180 degree different from one another oftentimes in their interpretations and rituals and what have you. So I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, just the nature of, of humanity and, you know, and maybe, maybe not necessarily the nature of humanity, but the nature of humanity historically. I'll say that.
2: <laughs> because yeah. every,
1: you know, along that line of history, we can see all of those occurrences where a thing like a religion or any sort of type of ritual that bound an area together was eventually usurped and utilized
0: for the, the gain of power and resources, you know, money and control. Yeah. That's fascinating to think about. And I, I like the idea of that being the nature of humanity. You know, I, isn't human, like human nature has to be pretty close to the nature we live in right and so if if we look at nature and we see this constant cycle of expand and contract you know whether it's the earth Mm -hmm. spinning or it's the glaciers moving forward and then retreating it seems to that that human nature would expand and contract. And I think we've seen that through the rise and falls of different humanities. And why wouldn't that be true with major concepts like religion? Like you see it expand everyone. It gets bigger, 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 and then it contracts and then it gets bigger, 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 and it contracts. And I, I think that's similar to language too. I mean, there's all these different languages and then all of a sudden everyone starts, you know, be, be it through a, a pandemic or a, asteroid hitting or or whatever it, it seems that that idea ideas go out and then they have to come back in just like the tide right it's if you start well, thinking about it it's everywhere
1: as above so below
0: <laughs> yeah really well put
1: and and so you know these things are they are seemingly cyclical but i would say they're more helical in nature um and you know you'll notice this this wave pattern throughout Everywhere you look, just like you were, you were about to get into the whole spiel. You're like, "Oh my gosh, it's the oh, waves too, and it's the, you know, it's the blowing of the trees, and yeah. it's the, yeah, and so you know, and you know, it's radio waves. It's how we're communicating right now So, you know, we have wireless signals, and those are those are waves that are you know allowing us to send information across airwaves. Another wave, right? And so, yeah. in all of these mediums, in, in so these interactions, the 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 ebb and flow that you were describing, is a really interesting phenomena because you know that ebb and flow, like with an idea or something, you know, it'll get to that place where it's just like, aha, it's like an accepted wisdom, and then it'll fall out for the next idea. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's an interesting evolution if you, like, start to look at a bigger picture of things, throwing stuff like computing and, you know, the evolution of technology and all of these things. And you get to the point where you see that a lot of these ideas that, you know, are, are new products, are new designs, you know, the, the my spaces of the world, you know, things that come into this massive thing and then dissipate. Um, it always it, it it's continual but it's not just cyclical it always advances the notch Mm. and then it goes around and then it advances the notch and then it goes around and so you have this you have this kind of almost helical motion of things because it does always we're we're always kind of seeming to move perpetually forward and in all of the in every way that you look at these things right even if you go back to religion what we started with you know now people it went from religion being everything to it was, you know, it looked like everybody was going to be an atheist from the year 2000 to there's been a much larger interest in the reason I wouldn't say a resurgence of re- in religion necessarily, but an interest in religious study. Right. And I think that's the next tick up in that cycle of things.
0: Yeah, it's almost like you said, It's it's like we're coming around to being more whole which used, when i think of whole i think of holy you know and in, in the idea of the holy and that that brings me to this point i was i'm curious to get your take on this i i was listening to a a pastor yesterday and he mm-hmm. had recently been part of an experiment at john hopkins university with psilocybin and it was it was a little bit like the good friday experiments they had back at harvard back in the day mm-hmm. and this guy he gave his he he. He gave his, um, he told about the experience that he had and, and he equated it to, he had mentioned that prior to having the experience, he had never taken mushrooms before and he was a pastor for like the last 15 years. And he said that he begot, he equated it to just like stuff you would read from a lot of different scholars. And, and this particular point was that It was a for him, it was like the sixth day of a meditation retreat. He started to feel his body, he started to feel the blockages leave his body. He felt like different Mm -hmm. sensations in his body. And during his experience at John Hopkins, you know, what, what I might call the encounter with the alien or the encounter with God or hearing a voice in my head, he just explained it differently. He said he was being spoken to in tongues. And I could relate to almost everything he said, but he used a different vocabulary to describe it. And what mm-hmm. I found really fascinating about the end of it was that after this process, he started up like a new type of church. And he thought that he, he started up this nonprofit where he wants to bring back to the Christian religion the sort of Eucharist, like the mushroom as a Eucharist. And he wanted Mm -hmm. to start having these retreats and bringing pastors in. And and he goes, you know, I I think it would be great if I could open this up to the Christian community. And he he was specifically talking about Christians and he wanted different pastors to come to this place and then go back and tell their tribe. And it just made me start thinking about like, wow, what an, what an amazing cycle of bringing psychedelic, the psychedelic experience back to religion so that everybody can see it and have it in that context, that could be pretty powerful. On one hand I was thinking that. And then on the other hand, I'm like, man, this guy's just knocking on the town. This guy's knocking on the door to Jonestown over here. But it's such a beautiful way. Like I, I try not to see that Jonestown aspect of it. Cause I think it has a, it holds a lot of power, but what do you <clears> think <throat> about that coming back into religion and psychedelics and, and maybe moving it back together? Something like that.
1: Well, I think, first of all i think there's strong evidence to suggest that you know uh psychedelics and religion are pretty closely entwined um you know the ancient uh you know illusion mysteries in in greece you have you know the the eucharist you have soma in india you have um you know the fruit of the gods you have a lot of tales that like once you look at a few different angles on it, it really starts to resemble some sort of psychotropic substance. And a lot of times, oftentimes a mushroom, I mean, I think there's even a temple in Japan, a megalithic temple that has a whole bunch of mushrooms. People call it the penis temple, (laughs) but it has a whole bunch of big mushroom statues. And so, I mean, if that's not a sign, I don't know what it is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think there is a strong connection historically between psychedelics and religious. Uh, and then, you know, fast forwarding to what you said about how he interpreted it as being spoken to through tongues. You know, I find it very interesting in, you know, going down the psychedelic journey for years and being around a lot of people who've done it as well. Um, people, Their interpretations, uh, especially when they get to those like first heroic doses and things Mm -hmm. like that, where they really kind of they hit that like aha moment. Um, You know, it's always filtered through the lens of their of their learned experience. Right. And so, you know, like when you for him, you know, that is such a foreign sensation. His is his mental association, the foreign sensations is through the biblical context of people speaking in tongues. Right. So I you know, I could see how that would, you know, that's kind of how his how his trip, how his experience developed. Um so but fast forwarding to, you know, now, um I you know, I love the idea of people being open and receptive and experiencing these experiences. The problem is is they can go to Jonestown so fast. Yeah. And if you look at if you look at religion a lot of religion already is knocking on the door of Jonestown they're just waiting for a moment essentially I mean you know it, it it's just wild stuff you know, where people are being fleeced and you have you know crazy manipulations and then if you were to throw a psychotropic substance into you know somebody who has a 5000 person congregation who's already fairly rabid and and completely you know it, mine fucked already <laughs> yeah well you're gonna have problems pretty quick um so i you know i think i the idea is great i think just like it says in you know most religions it's it should always be like a personal experience right yeah yeah and i think that's where a lot of this i think that's where a lot of the religion side of things you know ends up in direct contest with all of the psychedelic Mm -hmm. shamanistic experiences is because eventually you get to the point where you start asking the very uncomfortable questions, um, in a, in a place like that. And, you know, people who you've known for 30 years will look at you sideways real fast. Uh, so I think there's something to be had there for sure. Uh, you know, it's something I've certainly had conversations with people about, uh, in recent years too. Um, just because of the legal nature of how that's all going, um, so yeah, I, I think it's. I think in the future we'll definitely see a a new kind of maybe illusion mysteries type idea evolve around a place like instead of a Vegas, a city of sin, you have some other city <sighs> in the desert that's the city of enlightenment. You know?
0: <laughs> wow! Yeah. Yeah, I I I've been thinking about this for a while, and like I've been like obviously I've been talking to cool people like yourself who have a different way of looking at life. I've been I've been I'm hopeful. I've been talking to some people from Cirque du Soleil, and I, I would really love to pick the brain of someone who not only performs there and interacts with the crowd, but someone who puts on the show for the crowd and thoroughly understands the relationship between a performer, the crowd and the shared experience. Like in my mind, I coming back from California recently, I went to this vineyard and all I could think of was like, Oh my God, this must be what elusis looked like. You know, imagine like a vineyard and there's all, you know, just valleys and valleys on both sides. And then there's this amphitheater. Imagine mm-hmm. going there and having with this. Now you would have to have probably a, a invite only or something to begin with, but right. imagine filling an amphitheater with some of the best performers and, Having, I don't know, maybe like an eighth of mushrooms, where you're, you're, you know, you're not bazonkers or anything, and you're not at the top of the mountaintop, like taking in everything, but you're definitely at a heightened state of awareness. And then you, you as a group, you watch this play, you watch this performance, this potential Greek tragedy where someone loses a child, and all of a sudden you're transformed from an individual that came to watch and be part of this show to being a member of the society and feeling the pain of the people next to you. I think it has the ability to, to be a ritual that transforms people, you know, and it's, I really think there's something to be said about the ritual that one can not only view, but participate in. I think those two things mesh together. And I think Mm -hmm. that that bridge is through psychedelics and it's through a new Eleusinian mysteries. And like, I've really been thinking about that quite a bit. What, Hmm. What what, I guess, how would you envision, like if you were going to put up a new Eleusinian Mysteries, what are the boxes you would want to tick and what would it look like to you?
1: Hmm. Well, while I like the idea of the amphitheater and everybody there, and and I think that is a pretty interesting experience to connect with people in that way, I think the first step is people aren't even connected with themselves. Yeah. It's so true. Uh, and, I, you know, I, and it took years of pounding on the wall before I finally found the front door. Um, but, you know, after you connect with yourself, then I think those types of experiences, like throughout maybe like a given period of time, like a couple week period of time or something like that, I think those would be great to kind of foment You know a grander you know social conscious idea right uh but i think initially you know you have there has to be that initial that initial movement that trip if you will that experience that takes somebody and reconnects them with who they are um a good point and i think you know doing that is uh well you know i have a recipe it's a three-day experience
0: You kind of have a like you you have something that you've been working on that is similar to an hallucinating experience, and that's the that's pushing your body to the edge while on us on on taking mushrooms. That's got to be its own ritual and experience.
1: It is, um, you know, it was uh, with the intent to have a vision quest, the you know, kind of in, in an old school way. The first time I did it, and I succeeded, and you know, and then on top of that had very a large insight into a lot bigger of a picture. And so, you know, it's a continual thing, just as all things are, but it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, most people will be like, okay, how do I take mushrooms? Well, if you take, yeah. you know, anywhere from like three to five grams if you really want to go for it and go sit in a dark room. I think that's a terrible idea, personally. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, you start with You know, you you aim for that amount after the course of like two, three hours. And, but you go in 45 minute intervals and you exercise and do something physical and in the sun between all of these ingestion periods. And instead of not being able to move off of that, all of a sudden you'll be running up mountains while you're thinking in your head and singing out loud and didn't realize that you forgot you haven't been breathing. (laughs) So I think there's a different way to do that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> i'm gonna i have to try that that experience like i I've, in, it always makes me so thankful and, and and sometimes i think about like there's so many there's different ways for different individuals to get to a certain point point. And, and in a way like i was talking about how mushrooms can bring people together but there is this sort of solitude where you have to find your own way. It's almost like you have to create your own lightsaber in order to fight the battle that's right for you. And, and I think you're a hundred percent right. Like I, I think maybe being a little bit further on our journey or trying or being down this road before that, I know that I have forgotten what led to this journey and it's like, you just don't start over there. Like you got to start way over here, man. And and you start at the beginning and you start with the first page and the first sentence, and then you digest that. And you can't start people with the middle of the book. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. I, it's easy to forget where you started at, but yeah, I, I, I think that there is, what do you think about the idea that there is sort of a solitude to do it, I guess if you're going to find yourself, you have to be alone. Does that sound accurate or what do you think about that?
1: I, don't, I, I would recommend if somebody wanted to seek this path and they had zero experience, you find somebody who is a shaman of sorts um, to, to walk you down the path. Because, you know, while mushrooms aren't going to kill you and the, and the, and the experience isn't going to kill you, I've seen some people traumatized. you know, for long periods of time, just because they didn't know that what they were doing, they were willy nilly, didn't adhere to, you know, set and setting, didn't do any research about the substance they were, you know, ingesting, etc, etc, etc. And then, you know, six months later, they're still, you know, neurotic about the whole thing in life. And, you know, so if you're going to just delve into it, if you're going to dive into this world, I would definitely recommend seeking out somebody. But once you understand, once you get a hold of it, I think it is a it is a personal journey that, you know, you take and you, you reconnect with yourself and who you are. And and I think, you know, you could, it's really easy to tell people who've walked down that path as well, because yeah. when you meet them, you're you instantly say, <laughs> oh, hey, <laughs> how's it going? <laughs> yeah. It's just a different nature to the conversation. Right.
0: Yeah. It's like it's like being like oh yeah I've 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 been to Greece. Oh have you seen that one spot there? Oh yeah, it's like it, mm-hmm. it's an environment that you're familiar with and it's fun to talk about because it's a fellow traveler. Oh yeah, did you check out that dog leg back there or did you go to that lookout? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. no, I'll check it out next time. What that kind of brings me to the idea of psychedelics today. It seems to me that there there is this issue of, you know, it's convoluted. I, I understand that there's multiple people that need help. And like we probably all need help. However, I think that there's a riff in the community of psychedelics today where some people would like it to be, here's a substance you get from a doctor and you can go every Thursday and you get this amount and you have to talk to this guy. You might need a prescription. And then there's other people that are like, look, I'm going to show you how to do it once or twice. And then from there, you it's up to you to decide how to do it. And I realize that there's different levels of people. Somebody who has been severely traumatized might be an individual that should probably never do it alone or shouldn't do it alone for a year or two years. And I understand there's levels to that. I I guess that's why it's so tricky right now is some people think you should always have a doctor prescription. Some people think you should be shown the way. What do you think about that divide? And Are there ways to solve that?
1: It's an interesting thing because, you know, the, the, the kid in me who grew up banging my head against that wall and just trying to any psychedelic I could find for a number right. of years and, you know, just having fun instead of uh, working with intention. Right. He um, says that, Hey, you know, I, people should do this in the wild. It grows in the wild. You find <laughs> it in the wild, live it in the wild. Uh But then there's, a bit more of a sensible part of me as I've aged that says, Hey, you know, people do have trauma and, you know, all life experiences, you know, some people just break and those breaks need to be dealt with properly. And if you don't deal with the break properly, you do, you will end up with a problem. Uh, so, you know, I think on one hand, the idea that you putting it all into a clinical setting is kind of wild because it's very much not a clinical thing. Um, I think as most people would attest (laughs) Uh, and putting it in a, you know, in set and setting does play a huge role into the experience itself. So now if these places are retreats up in the woods or something like that, you know, that's probably, you know, it's probably fine. But, you know, if you're thinking like a hospital room with that's all white and with big old, you know, bright lights shining on you, you're going to have a rough time, I think. Uh, So, And then the other side of that problem is, is you have the vast number of people, you know, you're going to have if all of a sudden you have, you know, this is something that gets approved, you know, kind of like a marijuana has at a state level, you're going to have all of a sudden hundreds of thousands of people, you know, utilizing psychedelic substances, potentially, and you probably want that a bit more a bit more orderly than not. (laughs) Um, That being said, as you well know on psychedelic substances, nobody's inclined to go get in a car and go enjoy a ride. Um, You know, most of the time you're pretty much stuck to whatever soft surface you happen to find yourself on (laughs) about 45 minutes after you, after you ingest something. Uh, But, you know, that being said, I think there's probably room for both in the world. And this, this is where it gets back into the whole society thing of things where, how's it going to roll out? You know, do you have to pay to play the game? You know, am I Mm going to have to buy a million dollars worth of licenses and whatnot in order to facilitate this type of experience? Um, Or, you know, is it just that? I'm a guy who, you know, maybe there's a state certification test or something like that. Right. You know, or, you know, who knows how they're going to do this stuff Um, or, you know, even when it rolls back to the guy who wants to do it in a church. Well, what what happens if 90 percent of the people in the church are fine, but, you know, 10 percent have a crazy reaction and start throwing chairs at people? (laughs) <laughs> you know, where's the liability lie? Where's the insurance? You know, what's the cost of all these things? These are that's when these are when the, the societal questions start to arise. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that those will be interesting hurdles because unlike a marijuana where people are still relatively lucid, you know, most of the time, you know, psychedelics, people can be completely gone. You know, you can snap your fingers in front of their face and they won't even know you're right there. So there's a there is a you know, there's a whole bunch of challenges there when you're talking about, you know, safety and whatnot and safety of patients, you know, safety of property, safety of all sorts of things. So I think it's an interesting, an interesting development, I think it'll probably start out in those mountain retreats, critical environments, something that has a hundred million dollar in VC money. And, you know, you know, they, they're taking, you know, X amount of people for $5,000 retreats for two weeks, right. Or a week or something like that. Right. I think that's probably how it'll end up playing out more of a privatized thing like that. Just because of the massive hurdles from, you know, a, a communal slash societal perspective.
0: Yeah. I could see like I I could see that in so many ways and it's it's not a bad business model if you're a VC and you can you know, you can get some psilocybin from Canada or from a lab here that's pretty much pure and you can get it for you know, if you're talking five or ten grand a trip, man, like that's an expensive trip on all levels. You know what I mean? Well, I mean,
1: you know, that's what, you know, these people doing these ayahuasca tours right now are making are they really? I had, oh, what's yeah. The, what's,
0: it, what's it cost to go on an ayahuasca tour?
1: Well, I think there are some in the States these days, like in mm-hmm. L.A., of course. <clears throat> um, but, you know, I was looking down in Peru and Ecuador, and they're usually three to $5,000 for a week experience or so.
2: Mm.
1: So, you know, they're making pretty good money, too. Um, and it's it became such a popular thing, these ayahuasca retreats with, like, Kind of like your la type scene people yeah and so you know they're they're making a good mint and i think so there's a lot of people looking at that from a you know a bc perspective and going hmm, right we you know on one hand you got a burning man and then on the other <laughs> yeah. hand you have these ayahuasca retreats i think if we put them together <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah I wonder now, is that three to five grand? The, the thing about Peru or South America is you also get an option for malaria, too, if you uh, pay well, the right price.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I was down in Central and South America for you know, six years of my life. Um, never, never ended up with malaria. I never got a malaria shot. Uh, nice. I, I had to get a couple. I think the only forced vaccination I had to get was going into Ecuador and I had to get mm-hmm. yellow fever. Um which I was fine with. I didn't feel like getting yellow fever. I looked up the symptoms of yellow fever and it didn't sound all that pleasant. So I decided that that's okay. I'll take the jab in the arm. Um, And uh, yeah, but didn't have a problem with malaria. A lot of those places, like um, unless you go to one of those authentic, like, you know, an actual shaman in the jungle type scenario, a lot of those ones that are charging money are, you know, air-conditioned cabins that, Mm. you know, you know, you're only 20 miles from the largest, you know, a, a large city, probably, you know, maybe an hour from, from the airport, something like that. Cause all of those, all of those Peru, Ecuador, you know, you're right in the hills already. You're already in the jungle, all central America and Costa Rica, Panama, you're, you know, you're 20 minutes from the jungle. You're, you're an hour from the beach, no matter which direction you drive pretty much. So I think, you know, a lot of them, you, you're going to be fine when dealing with that type of stuff. Um, but, you know, some people are unlucky with that. You know, I yeah. know quite a few people who just showed up for, hey, it's my 10-day vacation. Oh, I have malaria. I'm like, How'd you do
0: that? It's, yeah. You
1: know, I, I'm living here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, in some ways, it seems so romantic to me to be able to do that. Down towards the amazon or central america that just seems like and maybe it's just a romantic notion but it just seems like maybe it's because the literature i wrote or some of the people i follow but it just seems like that's you know where you could have the ultimate experience but the truth is you could probably have a really good experience being somewhere comfortable in your own environment you know maybe Mm -hmm. not somewhere like that I, i think that you can get a lot out of that experience if you underst if you if you just decide what you want out of the experience regardless of where you are i think you're going to get closer to to solving some problems you know, but it goes well, back to intent like you said
1: yeah exactly intent and you know when you when you when you start to work intent like you work a muscle
2: mm. you
1: get you get well you get a lot better at it and eventually you know especially when you're active doing these things you, you're flexing that intent constantly because you're 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 being forced to interact with if you know not just nature other people and whatnot and so you know working that intent muscle eventually you get to the point where you're really very much in control of <clears throat> not just your thoughts but you know the, the whole experience of the experience
0: yeah and I you're, think you're
1: some... guiding yeah. yourself through it, essentially.
0: I think it brings us back to the idea in the beginning, we were talking about building your own business or building your own company or building your own idea and entrepreneurship. And one thing that I have found about particularly mushrooms is that it does take you to the mountaintop in some ways. And by that, It gets us back to language. Like, if you get high, you can look down on things. Not look down in a way that's negative or putting things down, but looking down at things from a different perspective. If, you know, if you and this this idea of getting high, like, you know, if you're gonna be in a battle and you want to ambush somebody, you want the high ground. If you want Mm -hmm. to see things, we want to get a 360 degree view. You know, the people in the prisons have a panopticon because they're always looking down. So if you Mm. get high, you can see things from a different angle. And that's true of any idea that you have. And I think when people use whatever substance it is to get high, you should be thinking about that. Okay, If I want to get high, I should be looking at my situation from a different perspective. And I think getting high sometimes has this, it's almost like a pejorative. All these people are getting high. Like, yeah, I'm going to get high so I can see things better. And I think you well, can I've use heard, drugs like that to see and make your life a little bit better.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think it's very much, it's probably still more a pejorative than it isn't.
2: <laughs> yes, right, it is. Um,
1: <clears throat> but, you know, that, that, again, that ties into, you know, the importance of words, mm,
2: right? You yes. Know,
1: you know, when somebody hears, oh, you got high, one person through their lens of experience of interpretation will look at that person as some sort of degenerate. You know, who's just wasting away their life. Whereas another person will look at that person and understand what you just said and be like, oh, they're on a journey.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, and they're trying to see things from a different perspective. Um, meanwhile, it's the same word.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, my. But all my... the other words influence all of those perspectives.
0: <laughs> yeah. Not only the perspectives, but, you know, if, if, if if you are one of these people that sees people who get high as wasting their life, then you're not even open to the idea. You're not even giving them an opportunity to explain what high is to them. And I think that gets us back to language as a framework. Like so often we never define our terms in a conversation. And so Mm -hmm. people either side monologuing or they're just talking past each other. And, that i think that this is another way we get to these isms It's like we have these predefined mm-hmm. ideas of what that word is and especially from different cultures like if if you know interpretation means translation and if we're mm-hmm. interpreting and translating different we're not even talking man so maybe everyone should be, should be getting high more often
1: <laughs> well that's <one> something <laughs> i that's one thing i loved about learning <laughs> spanish is because you know while there's a lot of things that translate there are just certain things that just can't translate and until i understood enough spanish that i understood you know the the way that the words went together the way that the language was structured you know the intonation behind things the nuances behind you know uh implied context and positive and negative connotations mm. and all of these all of these little nuances that language has all of a sudden you know those phrases become beautiful yeah and part of that beauty is the inability to translate it because that language defined such a particular, framed it so particularly well that you just, it, that you just can't actually articulate it in a different language to the, and have it mean what it's supposed to mean. So, you know, it's really interesting when you have situations like that in, in language, and I always love those. Um, and then uh, I had a point and I got distracted by my love of, (laughs) of untranslatables. Um, yeah. What were we going? Uh, We talk
0: about Spanish and how like, like the double negative or seeing language that is unable to be translated. So you you have a different context and you have a different framework and you have a different relationship with your environment that way. Like in German, they have words like schadenfreude, right? Where you're a little bit excited when somebody has like a bad day or, you know, there's just different. One word can be a whole nother concept that people in another language can't even think about because they don't have a linguistic pathway to get there. And these people like that, that that takes us back to Sapir-Whorf theory, that the more complicated and bigger the language the more articulate and more intelligent that group of people is going to be. And I know it's a, a theory that is contested a little bit, but if you took, and I actually had a, I actually got into a bit of a debate with my Hawaiian friend who was telling me like, you know, we were talking about language and how different languages allow different cultures to see the world differently. And I brought up this idea of Sapir whorf And he's like, you have no idea. Like the Hawaiian language, even though it only has a 13 letter alphabet is so much better of a language because people don't thoroughly understand that you could just put a little accent on this letter and it changes the word and and i'm like wait a minute can you tell me the last time someone with a big alphabet lost to someone with a small alphabet he got all mad at me he's like what are you trying to say like violence is the answer (laughs) (laughs) it was a good conversation but you know it's a really interesting
1: idea i would i would say it probably much more resembles a bell curve.
0: How so? What do you mean?
1: I would, think, I would think that there is a certain saturation point where a language can get too big and too diverse to where it becomes too burdensome to properly articulate something efficiently. And then it mm-hmm. starts to lose some of its efficiency as, as it gets to a, a larger and larger point.
0: Just like English right now. Like you, you see it peak... Or maybe even Latin, Latin splintered into like all, like France and it's into all these different languages. The same way that there's different dialects of English that have split off into like either Ebonics or Pidgin, you know, and there's all these offshoots now. However, mm-hmm. if you listen to Christopher Hitchens or one of these per- people who were educated that thoroughly understand the canon that is the English language, you're automatically like, whoa, this person's smart. You know, even if they might not be, but they have a command of a language, it sounds like they are.
1: Well, there was also, people were much more eloquent back in the day because instead of spending time scrolling and looking at our phones, digesting media, you know, the, the entertainment of the day was the dinner table. Yeah. It was the dinner party. It was, and, and, you know, in order to be heard in an environment like that, you had to be able to articulate yourself in such a manner that people that commanded attention and respect and you know, presented your ideas clearly and concisely. Uh, and we don't have a lot of that anymore.
0: Even storytellers, you know, if you look back mm-hmm. to the days of the Homeric verses where people would gather around and it was always the storyteller. And with storytelling comes cadence, comes eye mm-hmm. contact, hand movement, you know, new words to surprise people to, to, mm-hmm. think, about, to think about that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think there's something to be said about that.
1: There is, and I, you know, I, are you a fan of Isaac Asimov? I'm sorry? Uh, Isaac Asimov?
0: Isaac, yes, yes, he's got the, uh, the rules for AI, or the, the right, right.
1: Did you ever read, uh, he had a uh, series of short stories called The Black Widowers Club?
0: No, I haven't read you ever that. you about that? I know, but I will write it down.
1: It, it, it's interesting because basically it takes the idea of the of the old school dinner party um, and kind of puts like a it's a mystery twist on it. Mm-hmm. And so you know you have the guests who are you know a prominent lawyer, you know, a, a doctors, uh, you know, different high stationed people in society. Uh, and they all come for, you know, a, a dinner that's prepared at this at this one restaurant. And it's always a different theme. And then each week, one person has to bring a guest that has a problem. And that guest will have some sort of mystery for the group to solve. And so they all just sit around talking about different perspectives of it, how it could be, you know, you know, done in such a way or how a theft could happen this way. And it's, and it's funny because it's usually always the butler, the servant guy who is the smartest one in the room who gives them the hint to get the answer. But it, they're wonderful stories.
0: Uh, I, I got to read I can't wait to read that. The Black Widowers Club. Is that what it's called?
1: Mm-hmm. Man. I... And we, and you know, so we lack, when's the last time you had an experience like that where you gathered with a whole bunch of people who were just, you know, really doing well in their own positions in life and then we're posed a challenge as a group from all those varying perspectives that just doesn't happen
2: <laughs> yeah
1: i mean like yeah I, I, but think about if it did because you know as we were talking about a few episodes ago you know you have expertise but then you have the experience of generalized knowledge but now you can you can mash up both in in one idea one room one challenge one you know one debate if you want to take it that route, but imagine if, if we were still doing that, where instead of, you know, worrying about somebody's political leanings or whatnot, you were just taking the, the intellectual experience and sitting down with a group of people and posing challenges to them in interesting ways, while in the course of having a good time with, in a dinner party and whatnot, what, what greater solutions could be had? You know, what sort of because oftentimes, you know, it's 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 that one little thing like I can't tell you how many times I've been had a programming problem. And I'm talking to somebody who's not a programmer and they say something that's not about programming that allows me to solve my programming problem because I'm like, aha, I didn't even look at it like that. (laughs) You know, I was looking at it from this perspective. I didn't even look at it like that. And all I had to do was just expand my horizon just a little bit. And it took somebody one sentence from some, you know, some random conversation. Now, imagine if you took that and bottled it into a room with a purpose, with an intent.
0: Wow, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, that should be that should be something. Uh, like you said, I guess that was done all the time. I, I I don't know the last time I was at a dinner party, you know, with COVID and And working and and trying to do, and even
1: dinner parties over the past, you know, thirty some years, there's always the group of kids. There's always the person who has to leave early. There's always the person who shows up late. You know, it's usually a potluck or a barbecue or something like that. You know, there and there's never a dedicated focus to it. I mean, you know, maybe people got a game night or something, but you know, it very that just doesn't really exist in kind of our our society any longer. And I think that is a a tragedy. we lose out on a lot of perspective and conversations and things that actually, you know, moving the needle towards people actually understanding the world as opposed to people, you know, understanding less and less through, you know, headline. (laughs) Yeah. As being their only exposure to what's happening in the world.
0: Yeah. Like I, I, that seems like the erosion of community too. Mm -hmm. Like we've just gotten away from, We've, yeah. we've traded in the real thing for the illusion of, you know, like we have all these Facebook friends or we have all these friends that whenever I clamshell my computer, it's back into my own world and, and somewhat fulfilled. However, longing for contact in a weird sort of way. And I
1: think I just, you don't reach the same level of discussion. Agreed. You know, nothing gets as heated when somebody can sit up and, and, or stand up and, very animatedly act out their passionate position about something yeah you know right two feet in front of you you just you're not you're never going to get that in in a series of zoom calls and you know you're not going to even get that in you know just an everyday type of conversation because the same hoopla wouldn't be going on you know people wouldn't be ribbing each other and goading each other you know you just don't because things just don't translate right unless you're in person sometimes and and in those heated moments of passion, in those animated, you know, you know, just explosions, that's when people have profound ideas or say things that make people belly laugh for the next for the next month yeah. while they yeah. think about it over and over and over again. You know, and it's it's a travesty that that's that's, that's we're missing out on that.
0: Not only are we missing out on it, but it's it's almost as if we're te- we're trying to we're trying to we're trying to get that out of the god dang that's not the right word. It's almost like we're trying to relegate that out of community. Like when oh let's all do online school now. It's almost as if we are trying to purposely get rid of the felt presence of the other. Like we don't on some level. It seems there's an element to society that does not want people together. Like, I don't want you sitting next to one having that discussion. I would like you on the computer doing it.
1: Well, you know, I think, I think you could take that from a lot of perspectives, right? Yeah. I think from, uh, you know, a big tech perspective, you know, that's our goal. We're designing our algorithms to glue as many eyeball hours to our website as possible. Uh, you know, so their self-interest is always going to be that. Then you have, you know, you could say that there's other people who, you know, like from a position of like politics and power, especially depending on what country you are in the world. Yeah. They, they certainly don't want people sitting around and having a group (laughs) conversation. Um, because now all of a sudden people say, Oh, you feel that way too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Me too. And that's how revolution started. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you know, depending on where you are in the world, it's very much frowned upon to live that way. And I think, uh, you know, the combination of that and other things, you know, a lot of the you know, the profit driven motivation for all things, as we've talked about. Uh, I think that kind of entails itself to, you know, what we're we're seeing this erosion of community. Um, yeah. You know, it's and I don't think it's deliberate explicitly um but i think there are certain parties interested parties who are definitely you know explicitly interested in the erosion of community and in the erosion of nations and in the erosion of you know power structures that stop them from continuing what they want to do
0: okay so this brings me to the idea of your helical model if 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 we're moving forward and it seems like we're moving upwards doesn't it also seem like we're eroding them? Like how, how can we square that? Or how, how can it be that we're eroding community and that we're eroding relationships, but still having the illusion of moving forward? Can, can we, can we do both of those things? Aren't those well, in contradiction? I,
1: I would say they're not in contradiction. I would say, you know, those, you know, just as we were talking the ebb and flow earlier, those yeah. are things that, you know, they have to be taken out of the equation in order for us to see how dramatically bad some of these ideas Mm. and directions and structures of society can, can be. Um, And, you know, eventually it has to get to the point where it does fracture so we can build it back with the proper intention. Yeah. You know, know, again, as above, so below it's the, the same idea behind building up a muscle, lifting heavier and heavier weight over time you know, you're, you're tearing down the internal muscle, but it builds back stronger and stronger and stronger. And eventually you can, you know, you're, you're benching
0: 300 pounds, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm yeah. not, but some people are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I guess it, it it can almost go full circle to you're building this business. Oh, look, you just got 5 million views. Oh, guess what? You're off YouTube. Now you got to start over again, but it's not as hard the second time because you've already understood the road to get there. You've right. already you're,
1: the mechanics of the processes, the you know what ideas work, what ideas didn't. You're not wasting as much time. You become more efficient.
0: And you can put in this. You know what? I really wish I would have done this the first time. So as bad as it <laughs> sucks to redo it, let me just put this stuff in over here, and then that won't happen next time. Or, in mm-hmm. some ways, I look at you know we had just spoke about how you know being on the computer stops us from from having true community while giving us the illusion of community. And and we talked about the ebb and flow. And I think something similar to what's happening with Zoom versus talking to your neighbor is something similar that happened between radio and television. Like we went from having radio or reading, which Marshall McLuhan calls cold mediums because you have to do all the thinking. You have to do all the mental image processing and building the story in your head. When you wrote, Mm -hmm. when you read Isaac Asimov, your dinner party of the characters may look different than my dinner party. However, Mm -hmm. if we went and watched the screening of that movie, we would be given that information. We would all have that same look at it. So Mm -hmm. that particular muscle of visualization in our imagination becomes atrophied so too does the community become atrophied when we use the computer like that. So I guess that, that's another pattern of, of, of moving mm-hmm. forward but losing and then trying to build back better. I, I don't know if I, – I think that we lost out a lot on memory and lost out a lot on conversations and visualization, and then we built, tried to build it back with the computer, but I'm not sure that, that it built it back better. Maybe we're just in the middle of that process or something.
1: No, and it really won't. I mean, even when you're talking the the most awesome uh, VR stuff that exists. Yeah. And there are some awesome VR stuff yeah. that exists. Or, you know, when you put on like a first person uh, view for drones and you can fly like a bird for four miles, you know, in any direction. You know, these things are really awesome, but it's still it still does lack something. It's still not the whole experience because all of your senses aren't involved in the experience. Right. Right. When, when we're having those, those conversations, all of our senses are involved. In yes. The experience. Yeah. Um, and you know, to your point, you know, it, we have much more senses than just the five. We have that inner vision sense. We have a magnetic sense. We have a lot of different, you know, interoception. We have a lot of these things that are removed from the equation when, we start to replace that that time with, you know, the computer or phones these days.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about, and I maybe it's just a, a part of getting older and and remembering, you know. I think everybody has this experience when you're younger. There's always some old guy that's like, ah, oh, it's not the same, man. You kids today, or you mm-hmm. know, they're they're living in their ideas. And you don't understand that until you start to become that guy or that girl. And you're like, well, when I was a kid and you can see oh, the yeah. look on the kid's face, like, ah, oh, gee, here it comes again, you know? But I, I think maybe that's, that is something that if we're mindful of, we can, especially guys our age or guys and girls our age. I think that we're in a rare position that you can take the lessons that we're that your parents or your grandparents lived through and trend, take out the best parts of them, or at least the parts that you know, or are told the best and can learn and dust them off and give them to the next generation. I think that there should be some sort of rite of passage for not only kids, but for middle-aged people to go through that. Like, look, now you've reached this age where you're the bridge between the old and the new one day, like you've already, you were the new, you're not quite the old yet, but now your job as a middle-aged person should be to translate those times that your parents had and give them to the kids and, you know, also tell the old people like, Hey, these kids are doing well. You just don't get them, you know, but there should be some sort of rite of passage for us to go. Hey, we're the bridge now. You know, I, I think that we could benefit from these rites of passage at all ages of life. And I, I, maybe that's part of the psychedelic experience. Maybe that's why it's kind of coming back into it. I I,
1: I mean, you could definitely say the psychedelic experience is the rite of passage. I mean, that definitely, it's one of those things where if it was done in a proper manner in a society that was, you know, not just tolerant, but also supported the whole idea. And it wasn't, you know, in, in a community where everybody was on board, was speaking the same language in the sense that they defined their words the same. <laughs> you know i mean there's a lot of nuances that you would have yeah. to account for but i think if you did that properly i think you you know having a psychedelic rite of passage would be a good thing to do um you know when we look back at like the ancient mystery schools or even yeah. when you look at um you know like the the, the old trade schools when you had yep. you know the journeyman you know and in, in all of these things you know those it, it was a similar system you know all of the all of the intermediate you know, people in inside the school or inside, you know, the whatever trade it was, those were the people primarily teaching the younger people. Yep. And then you had the old journeyman who were, you know, overseeing thing. And then you had the really old journeyman who ran the whole thing and he would kind of wander around and put his, his fine touch on everything. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that type of structure, I think, there was a lot to be said about it. And I think there was a good reason that it existed in throughout antiquity for so long in various different forms and schools and, you know, uh, throughout, you know, even, you know, you go to Egypt, you go to Greece, you go to, you know, um, India, you go to all these places and it was the same idea. So there must be something to the idea is kind of my takeaway from that. And I, I, and I would agree with you. And I, I think that, you know, not only that, but we're also, we also really miss the ball when it comes to the elderly in our society. Yeah. Um, you know, these are people who, you know, they become a, a burden to society because it becomes a cost thing. You throw them into retirement homes to just wither and die. When they've lived 80 years of experiences, have untold amounts of knowledge, you know, not only that, they have the knowledge of the previous you know, two generations before them. Yep. And, you know, you're just gonna, and and, yeah, you don't want those people teaching 30 kids, (laughs) you know, that's not what you want, but sure, you know, a, a day in the garden with somebody who spent 50 some years of their life gardening every day professionally would be, would be beneficial to anyone. Right.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, uh, and, And instead of having a a community that facilitates that type of thing, it's again, it's all money driven. So then it becomes to the point of, well, you can pay us and we'll take care of them for $5,000 a month, but yeah, we're not going to, you know, but this is the package, but if you want the premium package, we'll bring in a personal trainer for them. We'll do all of this stuff. And then it just becomes this, this thing uh, that kind of just goes to absurdity, but, and ultimately misses the point of the, incredible resource that those people are yeah and it also you know it detracts from you know those people's experiences their life you know it used to be one of those things respect your elders
2: which yeah
1: i more of the idea that respect is earned but at the same time there is a lot to be said about that you know and it's not the respect your elder it's respect somebody who's been able to live this long for one yeah. i think that's where that's where it starts from but then also, you know, you know, have some respect for the sum, summation of experiences that that person has. Because undoubtedly, there's going to be at least a few, <laughs> more than likely a lot more that you have no concept of. And those are all could be valuable experiences for you. So, I, you know, again, I think that's just another one of those where we really just drop the ball, you know, and it seems Wherever education comes up, we really drop the ball.
0: <laughs> yeah, sadly. I agree. I, I think that there's something to be said about that structure. and you you can still see it so I mean, you can see the fact you can see that the architecture of it. like if you look at like a, a good school, you have like maybe the the professors who should be the wise men or women. And then the teachers who could be the journeymen and then the, the students, like you can see the structure, it's just that and, and maybe this is what happened. Maybe this is why it got this way, is it it just like all structures, it tends to become corrupted unless you do the hard work of repairing it from time to time. And there's mm-hmm. people in positions of authority that are there because of who they are, how much money they have. Whereas we've gotten away from the meritocracy of it. Like this Mm -hmm. person should be teaching that that person gets it. And what makes a teacher should someone in their twenties be a teacher? I mean, have they had enough life experience to really be a teacher? I don't know. Maybe some of them, but maybe, maybe there should be some other requirements. Like maybe instead of having to pass a written test to become a teacher, maybe you should have to have a resume and, have to have letters of recommendation and, and, and pass the test. You know, maybe you should have to have some sort of experience in the field you're teaching instead of just been sitting in a classroom. You know, it well, seems to me that there should be something the, there. <laughs> well, yeah. I, and
1: I would agree with you, but then the problem comes to the the practicality of it. And mm-hmm. it, you know, the reality of that situation is, is teachers don't get paid enough right. to for that to be a, a viable pursuit for, you know, to go off and gather all of that experience and then to go get paid $33,000 a year yeah. is kind of like yeah. an insult. I mean, it already is an insult. And then if you were to go off and do that, I think it's even more of an insult to the tomb where you just wouldn't end up with enough teachers to, you know, service all of the children. So yeah. I've thought a lot about this, you know, over the years recently. And I think, you know, this is one of those places where technology can really, really kind of bridge the gap because what you can do is, I mean, and there's some pretty cool ideas like brilliant.org has done some pretty cool stuff with learning and mathematics and, and STEM type stuff. Um and, you know, you have things like Wikipedia, which is awesome mm. if you use it properly. And, well, it was awesome. I don't know how it's doing <laughs> these days. You hear a lot of stuff. But, uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, if you combine these resources and, you know, you have interactive classes that are available 24-7 to children and anybody for that matter. And then you have additional supplementary classes, like you would go to the YMCA and take a class type mm. idea. Um, And those are the classes where you learn the finer granular ideas behind a subject or a particular trade or, you know, uh, you know, kind of like we used to have machine shop and and metal class and wood class and all these things, you know, you would it would just be things like that. And instead of having, you know, uh, instead of it being in a building all day it would be in combination with physical exercise, you know, practical applications of things like gardening, you know, having a student garden, you know, you know, because how much do you, you can sit there and read 12 books about irrigation, about, you know, landscaping, about gardening, about how, you know, nutrients, about all these things, or you can go out one day and watch one person who knows what they're doing do it and tell you what they're doing and why they do it and you're so much you have such a better picture of the process of the system that it is so you know having multiple aspects of, of learning where it's not just sitting in a classroom and you use the digital side of things to take care of the more of the of the can you know the memorization the the learning of dates the you know historical events things like that that are you know, are okay to be described in that type of manner because essentially it's just, you know, like reading from a book anyway, but it's a 24-7 access. And then you just kind of have an elective system for the rest of the of this the the more intimate subjects where you can have a teacher that does have the experience, you know, that went and traveled for six years doing You know botany down in the amazon or something like that and you know is there for the summer to teach about exotic plants and you know and then when you have that type of system i think you could make it financially viable to the point where you you know the school the organization would be able to afford to pay that expert who could come teach for the summer about exotic plants
0: yeah See, this is a brilliant conversation. I I really think that we are at the forefront of shaping education. And I think that's a big part of, of the chaos right now is if you look at traditional education, regardless of, well, I can't say regardless, but it seems to me in education, in primary school, kids around the world are taught, you know, they're a language, they're taught which is also a framework for looking at the world. They're also taught mathematics and science, but they're also taught like this thing called history, which it's so ambiguous. Like uh, histories are just different. And and Mm -hmm. now that we have become closer together, it's more, it's more in the forefront than ever that history is just a bunch of bullshit that was told by the guy that won the war in this particular area. And they don't match up around the world, different calendars, Mm -hmm. different times, different environments. And so the, I think part of the chaos we're seeing is this, this dissolution of history, this idea that, okay, look, we got it wrong. No one really wants to admit that, but we're wrong about all this history. And so there's chaos everywhere and people are fighting because they still want to, when they lose their history, they lose their identity. And there's a lot of people that have made lots of money that their whole world is based on their identity. And now that the foundation of their identity is being eroded, they're going to, they feel like they're going to die and, and maybe their so, identity might die. I want
1: to, I want to interrupt you. Yeah. Please, there, cause you please. said something interesting. You said when people lose their history, they lose their identity. Mm. And this is something that I have observed to be relatively true in my experience. But it's interesting when you said that, cause it popped in my head about what we were talking about before about finding oneself. Yeah. And I think, It's often, I think that's true because when, you know, when we're looking at the absolutism of these histories that we ascribe ourselves to because we don't know who we are, so we're only who we're told we are and Mm. what we're a part of, now that can be removed from us if these histories go away or we can find out they're false or what have you. Uh, You know, when we find ourselves, no one can take that away. And I think, you know, I think that's an important thing about that psychedelic journey. You know, it's called ego death. Oftentimes if you're looking up at yeah. the old internet forums <laughs> and whatnot. Uh, and I think there's probably better articulations to it. And I think it's much more of a process than a singular thing. It's much more granular. Um, but in that process of knowing thyself, you know, we, we removed those attachments to those, those, those weights that would pull us down off the top of our mountain. And history is one of those. And definitely the identity through history because of, you know, our inability to understand and know our place in the world, I think has been, like you said, abused and used pretty consistently. Um, but I think, again, there is a solution for that.
0: What do you think that solution is?
1: I think it's exactly what we we're talking about. It's a it's a new type of uh, illusion mystery. It's uh you know having it's having a structured psychedelic experience like that. that I I would I would hypothesize, uh, and I have a little evidence to support it, that if done well, it's a consistent experience that people have where they realize that, oh yeah, I spent my entire life as, you know, Ben, but you know, now I, I know I'm not just Ben and I'm not all of those things that Ben was attached to and all that stuff. Now I, I see the world in a different way and that identity, that perspective, that, that, that shifting of, of, of ego is, I think something that could be utilized as a solution to that problem. Now, can you do it on a grand scale? That's where all of these things come into problems, right? It's like, you know, it's cute to do it for a community. In fact, it's probably great to do it for a community, and that's probably where it should be centralized. Mm. But then the idea is, if well, it works for one community, and then 10 communities want to do it. You know, is there going to be problems at scale? <laughs> and the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> And and so you, you quickly run into these, you know, again, it's like a lot of these are great ideas and they and they and they will work at certain levels, but then you get into how do we apply these solutions at a larger scale? And the problem and we're running into it all the time through our conversations is just that, you know, because of the structures that exist right now, the way society is built, you really can't do these things. You know whether that be because of law or resource or location, or, or, you know you're just bound in one or multiple different ways that kind of take a little bit of wind out of the sails, but a little bit's enough for these to either you know sink or swim type idea. Um, so I think the the grander solution to that is a gradual solution where you know you, we can we can build kind of these Conceptual communities that are people with, who are like minded have the same ideas and are essentially signing up to be, you know, lab rats in a sense, but also <laughs> signing up to be, you know, entrepreneurs and, you know, uh, live a startup life in another sense, uh, because that's what it would be. It would be kind of a combination of, of things where, you know, it would be a full on entrepreneurial entrepreneurial experience but it would kind of be a group entrepreneurial experience
0: yeah that so i i I got a couple things like when we look at it through through that lens like do, do you think that do you think that us in this conversation particularly us for me anyway, for me seeing maybe for the first time history being stripped away. Can I, can I look at, maybe I should look at it like I see my history, the history that I was taught, the history that I knew, I see that falling away from me. And maybe this is something that every individual goes through. And it's just, I, I am seeing, because I see it being stripped away from me Now I see it being stripped away from the society and maybe this is the scaffolding of my ideas being fallen apart because I'm ready to move to the next part. And, and that's why I can begin to see it in the community is that I have gotten to the point where I am okay letting go of this pre-made history that was given to me. Now it's sort of a rite of passage that, okay, now you're ready to start building. We can start letting go of some of these things that you were holding on to. And you just see because you're allowed to do that, now you can see it happening to society. Is that sound like I, something? That, it's
1: wonderfully said. I would say it sounds like no absolutes.
0: <laughs> Thank you for that book. Thank you for the framework. Yeah, it's I I I can't, I know I say this all the time, but I I really enjoy having someone to talk to about these ideas because it does help me understand where I'm at, where my family's at, where my community's at. And like you said, a so above, so below. And I, I feel talking to you and some other people in my life have really helped me see the world differently. And I, I'm thankful for that. I, 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 I'm real appreciative of it. Thank you for letting me explain it like that. I think there's something there and it helps me help other people.
1: I, Which is, you know, thank you for that. And that's wonderful. I mean, that's only ever been my goal is to, you know, hopefully pass on some information that helps somebody else. And in doing so, you know, to hear it, you you know, to have it resonate with somebody who's, you know, 1,200, (laughs) 1,600 miles away from me. uh, uh, And then have, you know, seven beautiful conversations so far. uh, And to break my personal ice on podcasting, Yeah, it's been, it's been a fantastic journey for me. And I think uh, it's been a fun conversation so
0: far. Yeah, I I agree. And I, I, it's been rich and rewarding. And I, like, just, just going back for a second, I I really think that that has, maybe this is something everybody goes through. Maybe this is something that is taught in, in different mystery schools like that. You know?
1: Absolutely. I, you know, there has to be, there has to be the acknowledgement you have to let go of your previous attachments.
0: You have to, you have to, you have
1: to. I, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things. It's if, if you, if you, if we go around this cycle and you don't release your previous attachments, you don't go up to the next notch because yeah. they weigh you down. Um, and so then you're just going around the toilet bowl and you, and, and that's not fun. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's so rewarding, but at the same time, it's scary it's hard to let go of things yeah. because you're not quite sure but i'm looking at my bookcase right now and it's just sometimes i just sit in front of my bookcase like this and look at all the damn books and start being like what is it that's tying all these together and it's like "Dude, these are all stories that i have read and in a way lived through by reading them and, and consuming them and then all of a sudden you realize hey here's my book in my bookcase what does my book say what part of my book is a Algamation of all these people's books. And then you start thinking, like, you know what? I've I've participated in all these lives of these people. And you start seeing the things come together. And you think about history, is it fiction or is it science? It's both. And I don't know. I'm excited for the future because I can see the scales being ripped away. I can see the rocket leaving the launch pad and like the parts coming down as the explosion happens. And it's awesome to be investigating these parts, but I'm super excited me as
1: well i think it's you know it's a very interesting time
0: yeah Uh, i agree
1: it's you know it's not without its turbulence for sure um (laughs) and but at the same time you know from just like who i am as a person you know to if i was to wake up when i was 12 years old and you were to tell me that The world was just going to keep on going hunky-dory, and there wouldn't be too much chaos, and you would live to about 85, 90 years old, and then you kick the bucket, and it's just going to be the standard average thing, versus it's going to be a wild ride. Yeah, My 12-year-old would take the wild ride every single time. Every time. Every time. And right. I think you know, 12-year-olds are a bit more close to the, the natural human condition, and it hasn't been uh, nurtured out of us so much yet.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but stay curious, right? I think that that's mm-hmm. some of the best advice you could ever give anybody. Indeed. I, I agree. Yeah. Benjamin C. George, absolute blast, my friend. And I feel like the conversations are getting better. I got, you know what, let let me, you got a few more minutes. I got some questions here that people wanted us to talk about. Sure, absolutely. So we got got our good friend, True Patriots, and we got our friend, the uh, Metallic Man. And these guys want to talk about some topics that are happening right now. So let me just fire these off at you here. We'll start with this guy, my friend, True Patriots right here. He's asking us the big topic of the day is the FBI and the 87,000 agents in America coming our way. What say you about the FBI raiding our the uh, the Trumpsters Mar-a-Lago palace and then the mm-hmm. 87,000 agents? Let's start, with, let's start with the first one, the FBI. What do you think?
1: Well, you know, it's it's such a it's such a dicey thing. Uh, to have these federal agencies that don't have a re- uh, some form of mechanism of removal of power structures. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of the same idea with, you know, the people who live in D.C. on the Hill. You know, they, yeah. tip, they they're the makers and shakers. You know, it's not the elected politicians. It's the people with all the connections to all the lobbyists who've been there for 20 years who can make five phone calls and get something added to a bill at midnight before it goes to the floor tomorrow. Uh, And the same type of infrastructures and, uh, you know, ability to circumvent channels, if you will, uh, exist in all of those alphabet agencies. Um, And, you know, so... What do you say about them rating Trump? I really don't know.
0: <laughs> There's,
1: you know, unless they announce something, I, you know, it's really interesting the timing of everything in relation to midterms, uh, and along with everything else that's happening in the world in relation to midterms. When you factor in what people are projecting to be, you know, a, a high Republican turnout, and now you try to you know, you, you're doing everything you can to stifle that from a political perspective, makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, and that, that's how those people operate. Uh, so, you know, is it is it a coerced action? Probably just because of the, the corruption in the institutions themselves. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, you know, I don't think it's like any grand signifier of, of you know, like a crossing of the Rubicon or anything like that.
0: Yeah. I on the topic of, on the topic of the FBI and three letter agencies, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you know Hillary was getting invested for her server. And it wasn't that long ago that Watergate happened. And I, I think what you're seeing is a lot more of the same. You're seeing, but it, it's it's like you said, <clears throat> for those for those people that are watching this FBI invade Trump you're just seeing the power structure from a different angle than you did when you were a kid. It's been happening this way. This is the way power works. It's Mm -hmm. just, now you're over, now you're getting to see it from this level instead of this level. And pretty soon you'll see it from this level and then this level, but the song remains the same. And instead of focusing on the, the idea of the FBI invading Trump, I think you should try to focus on seeing it as for what it is, it's a group of unelected bureaucrats trying to get your attention over here, so you don't see what's happening over here. Right. Like it's a show, it's a reality show, and it's becoming more and more bread and circus. Then it, it needs to become more wild and wild to keep your attention, so that you don't focus on that which is coming your way. As far as the eighty-seven thousand agents, look, the the amount of money needed to run the operation is is escalating and that means we need more people writing tickets. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. The, the 87,000 agents saying, which, you know, troubling with that it was 4,500 firearms and 5 million rounds of ammunition. Yeah. So not only are they hiring 87,000 agents, which, you know, they say if you make first, they said, I think, uh, you know, they're not going after anybody, but billionaires and millionaires. Then they said it was anybody who makes uh, over $400,000 a year. But I would hazard a guess that the most likely scenario based on IRS statistics, which is like, uh, you know, the in, in your tax bracket, I think the people who are most likely to get audited are people who make uh, from forty dollars to $100,000 a year. And if you claim the earned income tax, Uh, rebate you are four times more likely to be audited than anyone else Uh, so when you look at those statistics and then you add 87,000 agents to it and then you subtract the amount of millionaires and billionaires in the country there's a lot of people that are coming for the middle class Yeah. and then to arm them is kind of interesting I mean I understand to a degree why you would arm IRS agents but I don't know. 4500 guns sounds like a lot. Sounds like a Pinkerton <laughs> militia type thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, I I mean the most the people who have the most money also have family offices and they don't operate in one currency. They have banks and in every country. And, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. protected. You're not going to get yeah, their exactly. money.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and, then- and- and then
1: the the tax laws are written in such a way that it doesn't matter if you declare it, you're going after millionaires and billionaires, you're just going after millionaires and billionaires who didn't pay the right accountant. Yeah, that's all that. That's all that yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, and again, there's only so many of those people. And it certainly isn't 87,000. I think the last time <laughs> I, I checked, there was only 33 uh, some thousand millionaires in the entire world. Wow. So far, far cry from 87.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i i i think that the world of politics is fascinating to watch but you should be mindful that you know you're 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 getting into an area that you don't have a whole lot of control over and it it can be debilitating in some ways if you get stuck there just watching that and then you fall into that trap of like oh i gotta do this i gotta do that but in reality, you should be worrying about the politics of your own life and your family and your friends where you can have some kind of play in there.
1: Right, which is a really interesting thing. you know. It's, I've contended for a while, um, and I've had quite a few debates about it, that you know, by and large, a person's vote in most Western countries doesn't really count anymore. Um, now, where that argument kind of breaks down is where you get to really local level type right. stuff. Um, just because that's much harder to <laughs> manipulate and it's much less valuable on the other end to get a, a payback from. Uh, but at the large scale, it really it really kind of holds true in most places. Uh, and so to, to lose yourself into something where you have no power to influence it
2: mm-hmm.
1: is just asking for nothing but a never-ending string of anxiety and stress.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember a few years back coming to the realization like, you know, I think by some means we're all political animals. Like, we want we want what's best, we want what's that. Well, we're is.
1: tribalistic. We're yeah, tribalistic. We are. agreed.
0: Yeah. And you can't, on, on a local level, you, you do have, if you have a lot of money and, and you have a lot of influence, then you can influence people on a local level. And mm-hmm. I, I remember watching and learning about, you know if you want to know what happens in your country, just look at what happens in other countries because it's the same thing. It might be a different shade, but the same way that there's a a communist ruling class in China, so too is there a ruling communist class in our country. The mm-hmm. same way that we look and we go, look at these people in Russia, man, there's so much corruption with their with their politics, like sure. it's the you same call. over here.
1: Yeah, you say you say, oh, the Russian oligarchs, and then it's like, well, who's that in the United States? It's the Clintons, yeah. it's the Bushes, it's the Obamas, it's all of it's. Yeah, you know, it's all of those families who the Kennedys who've been in power for forever. <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like I like a uh, there's a she's not really a young woman, but she's a very intelligent woman by the name of Catherine Austin Fitz. For people who are curious to look her up, and she was the uh, the. The, uh, not the chairman, but the secretary of housing, I think under, um, it might've been under first George Bush or the second George Bush. And she was telling some stories about her background in geopolitics and, and what's going on now. And I like what she said. She Someone was asking her about what she thinks is happening as far as the world around us. And is it is it the Western people that are the problem is it europe and the united Hmm. states or is it china and russia what about these lines of division and she says that i like i like her theory and her theory is that we're we are in the transition to a technocracy right now and it's it's not that china and russia are that much different than the united states and europe it's just that in the united states and europe we have oligarchs that are running everything we have the large corporate We have the large corporations like the World Economic Forum that have gotten together and said, look, we're going to do world government through a corporate structure. And you Mm -hmm. have China and Russia that said, no, no, we're going to do technocracy through a government structure. But regardless of what color the car is, the world of technocracy is here. It's this world Mm -hmm. of data driven ideas Mm -hmm. through behavior and licensing. It's just and and if you look at Russia, you go, oh, well, look, they just they just pulled Jack Ma aside and said, listen, you're not going to be the billionaire running stuff or the government running stuff. And over here we have right. the oligarchs running stuff. So it's, it's black cat, white cat. They both catch mice.
1: Indeed. So. And I, no, I think that's a, I think that's an interesting outlook on it. And I, I would agree. We are moving towards the technocrats. So we've yeah. pretty much been there. And I think that's why we're seeing the erosion of nation states and yeah. fracturing of things. Um. And, yeah and to that point it's nobody's the bad guy it's and it it ties into our previous conversation where it's you know society took it took its revolution around things and now it's time to notch up and you know it's just like we don't have any monarchs anymore that are pulling all the strings. yeah we sure have we have a couple figureheads still sticking around but you know they're pretty much the last of a dying breed yep Uh, and then I, you know, it'll be, uh, probably a time not in the too distant future where we'll look back in the idea of nation states and there might be still a, a couple kicking around, but the idea is becoming a dying breed. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, we've talked a lot about language and I, and, you know, communication. And I think part of that is, is just, you know, the underlying force, if you will, is the, the the simple act that we're all talking to each other now. So while we have lost a lot of the communal aspects of the dinner table and the dinner party, well we we have gained the ability to have conversations at a global level. And you know the you know because we've started having those conversations, I think that's why we're seeing the next the next edge up in our cycle here. And I think that's you know that's why the things that are bad are now showing themselves as being very bad, and everything's breaking at scale. We're seeing the fractures of all this stuff because now we can communicate and we can have the conversation and be like, hey, did you know this was happening? No, I didn't. How could that be happening? I know, right <laughs> <laughs> and and so that changes and then when you know that and then when the local thing happens, somebody goes, oh, no, 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 no. I heard about what they did over here. I don't, we we shouldn't do that over here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, that changes that, those conversations and it's been changing those conversations since the advent of global communication. I think, you know, we're just, we're in that, we're we're part of that fomenting of that change.
0: Yeah. And that that brings us back to to the people out there that are worried about, the politics in your nation whether it's it's trump or z or the falling of your economy or the the uprisings of people in poor areas instead instead of focusing on that part of society breaking i would try to inspire you to see this as an opportunity to build something where that's going to fall or at least start paying attention to Hey, all this stuff's breaking over here. Okay, what does that mean? If that stuff's breaking, then we need a new foundation. Or if that stuff's breaking, we need a bridge. Instead of focusing on all these parts that look like they're chaotic and breaking, look at them like an opportunity as like, oh, you know what we could do here? We could do this. Hey, this is the first time we could ever have that. Start looking for the – when you see the cracks in the foundation, look for the sunlight coming through. You know, see how the shadow falls, but understand what you. What is that? If there's a crack in the in the wall, what is it shining light onto? What is this? What can you see now? What is that shadow showing? But see it as an opportunity, and it, it'll take away the anxiety. It'll take away the stress, and replace it with a glimmer of optimism. Whenever you see a crack in the foundation of the wall, see it as sunlight shining through instead of something breaking down, and you'll start. Finding that the people around you are more of an asset than a liability. What is this person upset about? Why are they upset? Oh, I see why they're rioting. And then you can find that common ground to build something on. And I, for my friends right here, True Patriots and the the Metallic Man, look, we all got strong opinions on on things that are happening, but see them as opportunities, not to opportunity. Not to do something opportunistic to someone against you, but an opportunity for yourself to grow, and I think you'll see the world better. Well said. Thank I you. Think,
1: I, I think uh, you know. In, it's through, you know, you can't have order without chaos. Yeah. And 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 it's when we define order from chaos that we, you know, that that is the kind of the foundation of what differentiates us from anything else on this planet is we have that we have a fairly unique ability to take chaos and make
0: order and that's something all of us have like we all have our own way of doing that and i what i think i think too i know that i used to get stuck in this hole and this idea of like oh there's people with all the power and all the authority but in the grand scheme of things I think everybody has the ability. Like, I I think the halls of power are kind of empty. Really. When you start looking at the leader, that guy's in charge. Really? Oh yeah. Oh (laughs) no, it's, it's, it's a clown car,
1: you know, (laughs) at the head of, at the head of the thing. Right. Which, which is, I I find comforting personally. You know, if, if it was a, if it was a centralized cabal that had all of their shit wound tight and had, you know, had been, working on it for thousands of years and had everybody under their finger, there's not a lot of opportunity. (laughs) But when you got a whole bunch of people just kind of shooting from the hip, there's a lot of opportunity.
0: Yeah. You have a lot more potential of getting further in life than you've ever even imagined if you just start looking at it from that angle. If you, if you get away from the oppressive idea that people control you or there's people in charge or someone in authority knows what they're doing, chances are you know just as much as that person. Maybe you didn't go to the same school. Maybe you didn't come to the same family. But I guarantee you, you've been through hardships in your life that have earned you a spot at some of the highest levels if you're willing to believe in yourself. And I, I I just hope people take that for what it's worth because it's so true. And we need more people that have been on the bottom to sit at the table, right? I think there was an old saying that said something in. like, oh, right, there's just one old I, saying that people talked about that said, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're on the menu. So just force your way <laughs> to the table.
1: <laughs> well, you know, in my perspective, everybody has a seat at the table. If they so choose to to sit yeah. there, that, that becomes the question. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I, I I echo your idea. We, we do need more people who want to sit at the table and and have the adult conversation and and do the things and, you know, change the world a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what we're doing here. At least that's what I tell myself. And I – ladies and gentlemen, Benjamin C. George, the first book of the hype – well, the first book's out, and it's called No Absolutes, A Framework for Life. The trilogy is in the works. We've talked a little bit about the second book. We'll be talking more about those books Coming down later in further conversations, Benjamin C. George, where can people find you? What do you got coming up? And do you want to leave the people with anything else?
1: Uh, As always, Benjamin C. I will be having a a no absolutes podcast coming up here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, George is going to come be a guest and I'm saying that live. So he can't say no to me. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, Yeah, uh, you know, looking out into the world right now, especially right now, it, it could be a completely chaotic thing. But when you bring it just to yourself, your family, and you start looking at things and you remove the absolutes from your life and you start taking things with a grain of salt and looking at things through perspective and lens and realizing that the words that you use identify not just your thoughts but your actions and the results in your life all of a sudden everything that you could possibly want to do in life want to achieve every success that you think you might want you can go off and do it and the roadblocks the the hills the mountains that you thought were there before you realize they were actually just mirages in a desert
0: wow that was really well said really well said ladies and gentlemen that's what we got for this week. Um, this is out right now. The podcast of audio will audio be up in a little bit, and you can uh, all the links will be below. So thank you for joining us today, and we'll talk to you soon. Aloha.. All right. And Aloha, everyone.